All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Before we get to uh, the sermon, I just want to say, um, being out there and listening, um, which I don't get to do often, being out during the singing and, and everything, but I think one of the things I'm so grateful for coming out of COVID is our scripture reading and hearing your voices so loudly proclaim God's word. Um, if you're new here, when we first started gathering uh, after um, not meeting for a bit with, with in the midst of COVID, um, we didn't sing it first, just out of uh, caution. We, uh, in, in place of songs, we, we read psalms um, as a congregation, and, and we've kind of kept that each week um, doing one, and it's, it's a blessing. It's a blessing for me. I hope it is for you as well. Well, today we're going to be looking at Matthew 26, 57 through 68. So as you're turning there, I want to say that as we look at um, the text over the next week um, leading up to and through the crucifixion of Jesus, one of the things I want to highlight is how Jesus stood in our place. That's going to be the emphasis today. Not just when He was on the cross did He stand in our place, but throughout the passion narrative we see how Jesus was our substitute. He stood where we should have. He endured what we deserve. He was truly our adversary and our substitute. We are saved only because of Jesus Christ. And we see that in the text today. Jesus represents us on earth and before the Father. And it is a glorious truth. And so, if you're able, please stand and follow along as I read the text, beginning with verse 57 of Matthew 26. Then those who had seized Jesus led Him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following Him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard, this, heard His blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. And then they spit in His face and struck Him, and some slapped Him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We praise You that You have given us the truth. Your word is truth, Lord. We ask you to help us that as we 
look at your word today, that we would receive it as truth, that we would embrace it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Here's what I want to do throughout this text. I want to highlight the ways that Jesus took your place, the way that Jesus took our place. If you are in Christ, if you know Him, if you love Him, if you're saved, if your sins are forgiven, it is because Jesus took your place. He received what should have been put on you, what should have been put on me. He was punished instead of me and instead of you. And so I have this morning seven ways that Jesus stands in our place that we see in this text. The first is this, Jesus stands in our place as the one on trial for sin. Verse 57, then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Jesus is led away. His disciples have fled. He stands alone other than being surrounded by those who have come to arrest him with weapons. And this armed crowd leads Jesus to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, all four gospel accounts record that the Romans sentence and execute Jesus. But that action begins here. That process begins here with the Jewish religious leaders. It's the temple authorities who arrest Jesus and bring him to the Romans and pressure Pilate to have him executed. And this trial that takes place before Caiaphas occurs at night and in haste. The religious leaders want to do this in a way that doesn't draw attention. They're trying to avoid the many followers of Jesus having an uprising because they loved him. And so here's Jesus in front of Caiaphas at night on trial for sin. But Jesus hasn't committed any sin. He's committed no crime. He's come from the Father to this earth, and He lived a perfect life. He taught the Scriptures and gave correct teaching on what God meant through them. He showed how the religious leaders were hypocrites and placed burdens on the people that they themselves did not carry. But He never sinned. And the things he's being accused of, although they're absolutely against the law of the religious leaders, they're misunderstood. Because you know what isn't illegal? God calling himself God. God forgiving sins. It's only illegal for someone who isn't God to say those things. And so here stands Jesus in our place. We are the ones who deserve to be on trial for sin, and He stands there for us. Jesus doesn't deserve that. He never sinned, but He came willingly to take our place in this. Secondly, Jesus stands in our place as the one who is faithful to the end. Verse 58, and Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. 
Now, I don't know why this stood out to me for the first time, but it did. Notice what it says. Peter stands back at a good distance. He's hiding. He's one of the, the, the disciples that fled when Jesus was arrested. But he wants to know what will happen. And what Matthew writes is he sat with the guards to see the end. The NET version translates it, he sat with the guards to see the outcome, to see what would happen. Peter wants to see the end of it, how all of this pans out. What's the outcome of this arrest? Now, there are ways in this text alone that it could pan out where Jesus is released. He could deny when they falsely accuse him. Before Caiaphas has a chance to ask Jesus the question that he asked, Jesus could speak up and deny the accusations. He could just leave. You know, Corey mentioned last week that there were times where the people wanted to arrest Jesus and even kill him, wanted to throw him over the uh, ledge of a cliff. And he just walked through the midst of them. He could have left. He could have just walked away. But he didn't. He sees it through to the end. And that is the hope we have. We needed someone to do that for us. The truth is, we falter, we fail. I mean, you consider Peter who's sneaking in to observe, to see the end. He's hidden. Because even though he said that he wouldn't fail Jesus, that he would be faithful to the end, he wasn't. And that can be true of us as well. It might look differently, but, but it's true every single day for us as humanity. Yet Jesus stands in our place as the one who is faithful to the end. He sees it all the way through for us and then becomes the one who keeps us to the end. I love Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Jesus stands in our place and is faithful to the end. He sees it through. Third, Jesus stands in our place as the one falsely accused. Verses 59 through 61. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now they want Jesus dead. They want him gone. They want the disruption of who he is and, and, and all of the following that he's bringing and all of the things that he's teaching to be gone. But they cannot kill him without cause. They need it to be legal. They need to have something against him so that they 
can appear to be righteous in this murder. And so they try to find people to give testimony against Jesus. They need more than one because that's the law. Two or three witnesses, two or more witnesses. But they cannot get two people to collaborate in a way that seems remotely true. And notice that it says, Matthew reports that many false witnesses came forward. Many people coming forward to give false witness against Jesus. Finally, they find two who both testify that Jesus said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now, is that true? No, not exactly. That's not exactly what Jesus said, right? In John chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, this is where that happened. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. So that's where they're getting this testimony about Jesus. But it continues. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus is saying to the people, destroy me, and I will rise from the dead three days later. And they interpret it literally saying, tear down this physical temple and I'll build it back up in three days. These witnesses managed to distort his prophecy of his death and resurrection so that it sounds like a threat against the temple. But again, notice what is happening. The religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, are scrambling to find an accusation against Jesus to put him to death. Here's the reality. It wouldn't take two seconds for an accusation to be found against any of us that would make it worthy of death under this system. But here Jesus stands in our place as one who is falsely accused for us so that we will never have to be accused. Number four, Jesus stands in our place silent when treated unjustly. Verses 62 and 63, and the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Look how Jesus responds to these false accusations. He doesn't. He stands silent. That is righteousness. That's what righteousness looks like. If you want to see a difference between Jesus and you, if you want to see a difference between Jesus and me, Look here. Jesus is righteous in our place. We are the ones who deserve to be accused. And so often when we, when we are rightly accused, we speak up. We defend ourselves. We push back. We lie. We curse and on and on and on. And here is our righteous substitute. 
Even when he is falsely accused, his righteousness stands silent. Isaiah 53, verse 7, that we looked at briefly last week, says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He could have spoken up. He could have silenced his accusers. He could have spoken to call legions of angels to his defense. But he didn't. His silence is for us. He stays the course even when falsely accused because he loves us. He's there for us. His righteousness for us. We looked at the text a couple of weeks ago in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made Him, Jesus, God the Father made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And that righteousness is displayed here on our behalf. He stands silent when treated unjustly. Number five, Jesus stands in our place as the Son of Man. Verses 63 and 64. Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now this is so very important for us. Jesus doesn't simply stand in our place as a human. He does that. But that's only part of the story. Jesus stands in our place as the Son of Man. Since the high priest really has nothing to work with, he invites Jesus to incriminate himself. You tell us. You speak up. I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. He's asking Jesus to admit if he is Israel's deliverer. Now, the religious leaders have already seen Jesus' triumphal entry, what he did in the temple. They've heard him say that he forgives sins on his own authority. And only God can do that. And this question puts Jesus in a position where if he says no, he's free to go, but he's also a liar and he cannot lie. Jesus has no need to conceal who he is. He doesn't need protection by lying. He can't lie. And so he responds, you have said so. But then he continues, and it is wonderful. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Amazing. Jesus is the Messiah, but not the Messiah that they anticipated, not the Messiah that they imagined would be. He is the Christ, and He sits at the right hand of God the Father. He comes on clouds, not with armies. Jesus rules, but not in the political sense that they anticipate. Jesus alludes to two Old Testament verses here, both concerning the Messiah, the Son of 
of man. First is Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then we've seen this as we've worked all the way through this gospel of Matthew. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. When we hear Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man, he's, he's referring to this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." Jesus is the Son of Man who has universal dominion and glory, and He will come and judge at the end of the age. This is true of Jesus, and He declares it before these religious leaders, given dominion and glory and a kingdom. He stands there in the presence of earthly judges willingly in your place. This God in your place. As the sovereign king of all, he has all power, even power to bear the wrath of God for our sins. Something that you and I could never do. We need him right there where he is on trial as God. Jesus stands in our place as the son of man. And sixth, Jesus stands in our place as the one receiving the guilty sentence, verse, verses 65 and 66. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He's uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. This response by the high priest is no surprise. It's exactly what he had hoped for, had been waiting for. And he tears his robes, which signifies grief. And so there's, there's probably a, a, a mixture of feelings going on here in the high priest. There's, there's the, a conflict, right? There's, there's this, certainly a feeling of grief as someone that he sees as a man confesses to be the Christ in the midst of these people. Certainly there's a, there's a hint of grief there, but but also in the high priest, there's likely relief and gladness that he has caught Jesus in his own words. And so he says that this is blasphemy and that Jesus is deserving death. We don't need more witnesses. You've all heard what he said. He asks what their judgment is. They all respond, he deserves death. Now imagine this scene, the hatred, the anger, the that they're all expressing. They despise Jesus. Jesus stands there completely innocent. He's lied about. He's receiving a guilty sentence in our place. Put yourself there. We all deserve that sentence, all of us. We have committed injustices and sins of all kinds. Jesus has committed none. His life consisted of truth 
and grace. He loved his neighbor perfectly. He taught without error. He served endlessly. He prayed passionately. He trusted God's word and God's will completely. And he is found guilty in this room. Now, this pronouncement will not be enough for the Sanhedrin. They want him dead. They want him crucified, and that must come from Rome. But here he stands for you and for me in our place. And lastly, Jesus stands in our place as the one mocked and beaten. Verse 67 and 68, then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Jesus, the Son of Man, is mocked and beaten. You, the picture of that is, is nearly impossible. I mean, you consider Daniel 7 and what it's speaks about the Son of Man and how it describes the Son of Man and all of His power. And they've seen this. The disciples have seen this. He speaks and calms raging seas. He raises the dead. He touches a man with leprosy and He's instantly clean. And so for Him to be there, He has to be there willingly. He's mocked and beaten. They spit on him. They strike him. They slap him. Isaiah 50, verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Mark's gospel account includes that they blindfolded Jesus. Jesus stands there suffering for you and for me. He's mocked and beaten in my place, in your place. There's much more suffering to come. This is only the beginning, but he, he stands there suffering for us. This is injustice against the holy God, but Jesus takes it. He receives it willingly for us to rescue us, not just from it, but from our sin and from eternal punishment. Jesus stands in our place as the one mocked and beaten. He stands in our place. We are lost if He doesn't. We have no hope of enduring this on our own. We needed Him and He came through. Victorious over all of it. We'll see that as we keep pressing on through these verses and chapters to the end of Matthew. We're going to move into a time where we take the Lord's Supper together. A time to remember Jesus, His body broken for us in our place. His blood poured out the forgiveness of our sins. We have so much reason to be full of thanks as we consider Christ. These are just symbols that He's given us to remember. 
piece of bread or a cracker to represent his body that was broken for us. A cup of juice or wine to remember his blood was literally poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. They're just symbols. As we take them, we have so much reason to be grateful, to be thankful as we remember this really did happen. These symbols represent something greater than us. And so as you come forward, as you're dismissed, and you take the cracker and you take the cup back to your seat, let's remember with thanksgiving Christ who stood in our place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. You're so good to us. We ask you, Lord, that you would help us to remember rightly what you have done, what you've accomplished for us. We thank you that you willingly came and stood there for us. You endured the things that we deserve so that we could be set free, so that we could know you, so that we could be with you forever. You went through all of that and you say, if anyone believes in you, if anyone simply trusts in you, you'll forgive them. That's mercy and grace that we can't comprehend. Help us to be grateful and thankful, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.